Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Becky Hill, and welcome to my podcast about dance music and its culture, where I'll be talking to hand-picked dance music legends to discuss their music, their careers, and their influence on the scene. I've asked my guests to bring along three tracks that mean or say something to them. It could be an artist that's influenced them, a beat that has changed them, or a record that reminds them of a certain place or a certain time. And I've brought my own track that defines why they're my guest. This time, I'm talking with Pete Tong. A true industry legend, head of his own record label, international club DJ, Radio 1 presenter, record producer, the list goes on. Thank you so much for doing this, by the way, because I know I know how manic it's been for you over the last <laughs> two weeks because I've been with you. Exactly. Um, with the whole Ibiza Classics tour. Um, so before, and I think it's really important, uh, the reason why I've wanted to speak to you is because of this, because of the whole I Beat the Classics tour, and it's, what, the fourth year now? Yeah. Um, and I I remember going to see the show, the first show right. at the O2, um, and being slightly dazed in, in my own world, let's say. <laughs> um, I remember saying to the people I was with, I need to be doing that show. Right. And I won't stop <laughs> until I'm doing that show. And he was like, you will be next year. Right. And um, lo and behold, we were. Mainly because I think my management, I told my management to beg you for a slot <laughs> <laughs> on, that slow, on that show. So, But before we get onto this, I think... Well, happy we did. Yeah. <laughs> me too. No, I'm, you're not leaving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to buy a triangle for next exactly, year. Yeah, yeah. That's my part. Um, so I think... I think before I get on to, I mean, I have so many questions for you. Um, but before that, I think, can you tell me what initially started to make you fall in love with DJing when you were a kid? Um, I just always wanted to be involved in music. I love music. Um, I, I started banging things when I was a kid. So, so I'm told by my parents. Um, they got me a drum kit, super young. And then at school, I was in a band, bad bad heavy metal band um, <laughs> and he's sitting in my front room just listening to kind of like T-Rex and Deep Purple and like um, old rock bands The Who and then um, at a school disco one year I saw, I saw one one day I saw a DJ for the first time in my life like literally two turntables and an old amplifier stuck in between playing somebody else's music and it just made a lot more of a better noise kind of thing and um i just i kind of just transferred i was instantly it was an instant kind of love affair with the idea of playing other people's music to mm. people um was it always dance music you wanted to do well no at the, the beginning like super early it was like the pop, you know pop music of the day because i was doing kind of school i did literally took over the school disco and mm. then <laughs> i um gravitated quite quickly into things that were kind of funky or or, or danceable yeah. So, um, you know, pre-disco, disco, um, and just, yeah, dance records back in the day. So it was like KC and the Sunshine Band. My dad was quite a big record buyer, so um, he would, you know, occasionally he'd, he'd, we'd get these American kind of funk records and right, stuff like that. Right. So um, it was like anything you could dance to. So And hence then getting into James Brown and Parliament and Funkadelic and stuff like that. So. Do you still play those records now? Very, very rarely um, at some kind of 
exceptional circumstance. I, I, probably the last time I played a record like that was um, I did a a thing with um, I'm just trying to think. It was with Rob the Bank actually on a on a beach in Ibiza, probably about fifteen twenty years ago, uh, where we just decided to play a seven inch set. So I had to bring seven inches Shit. out. So um, yeah, wow, it was, it was yeah. But I mean, I um, I did do a. I got asked to do a vinyl set. Um, this year and I did it in Miami and it was a my, my vinyl had been in storage for a long long time like years and years and years it was mm. it was the collection was too big to ever get out in my house and it was just too heavy um, so it had been locked up in storage and for years I thought I should have sold some of it or whatever but I kept it and then when we went to um, kind of unpack it and start to organize it because I knew this vinyl set was coming up, um, I found out that one of the units, the records even got flooded, and I lost a lot of the seven inches actually. Oh no! So I got um, so they're they're now in Bethnal Green in a in a one of these units, like a shipping container, yeah. and it's all got shelves inside. I'm not telling anyone where it is. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Bethnal Green, and um, it's near Dizzy Rascal's house. So <laughs> work it out from there. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so I've got it all racked out again. And I was able to do this vinyl set. And it was a lot of fun. So it was going going back, kind of physical records and stuff like that. Yeah. Did you did your dad take you um, record record shopping a lot then? Was it your dad no, not really. Came? I mean, only only into um, there was a local record store in Gravesend that was um, pretty cool, and they did the the the, the crowd um, that I grew up around were quite savvy to under kind of you know you call it underground music of the day so it was like funk and soul records jazz funk records reggae records mm. and the, they would um go up to london and come back down with different records and stuff like that and this record shop tried to get in on that and be part of that and stock a certain you know try to specialize in a certain type of music and i got a, a part-time job in there actually because i just loved you know the idea of fight you know in the old days of a record store mm. the sleeve would sit out in the shop and the record would be filed in, you know, in a um, on a shelf, in in a you know container or sorry a sleeve, mm. another sleeve. And then if someone wanted to buy the record, they'd bring the sleeve to the to the um, counter, the till, and then you'd have to go and get the record and put it in. The thing. It was it was like antiquated, but that's what you had to do. And I love I love the whole process of kind of cataloging records. And I was a train spotter. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like it was a lot more special, I suppose, back in the day. Well, I think just seeking out records. It was the, yeah, it was a mission. Yeah. It was an absolute mission, and it was the um, it, it was the making of you as a DJ in terms of how you you know the kind of records you found and the records mm. you bought, and that that told everything about you. Was was how you know? We, and I back in the day, I would we'd get records and cover up the labels, you know, and put like I'd, I'd literally sit on my kitchen table and cut out a white circle and then physically stick it on top of the label and then write something different on it so that obviously when people came to the dj booth and they asked what the record is they couldn't find out what it was really? so we did, we did we did all of that <laughs> how um, sneaky yeah was that how competitive it was back in the day then super competitive in the kind of old soul and jazz funk scene yeah right and then um and just yeah it was just, it was definitely was a mission to get records it was um you know, it was mail order. You know, you used to get these magazines that used to write about the music, and then yeah. record shops in the back would have um, these really train spottery like ads that was just like endless type of like all these different titles. So then you'd um, you'd have to like send off a check to the record shop, you know, and, right. and get it mailed to you. So it was check, man. And then, or you'd have to go up, and then eventually, you, I got, I started going up to London and visiting all the hot, the hot record shops. And then you have to build your reputation with the person behind the counter to that you become the one that they want us. You know, they didn't want to just sell the records to anyone. So, right. um, if you were just Joe, no way. blogs off the street. Um, if if they only had five copies of something, then you weren't going to get one of those. Right. You, you, had, you had to be someone to get one. So I, was, I had to work my way up through all of the hierarchy of that. And there was two shops in particular that I got. You know, there was Groove Records, which is around the corner from here, and Greek Street, um, long gone. And then there was one in Holborn called City Sounds on Proctor Street. And I got very... I got to the top of the tree of both of those stores. And at City Sounds, I would literally... Um, be there when the boxes came in from America and no then we'd way. open up the boxes and I would, they would almost give me the records to check and find out which were the hot ones work and so I got right to the top of the front of the process. How long so. did that take you do you reckon? A few years to get, really? to get to that yeah. 
And what did that entail then? Did that entail going around to the clubs in the local area and kind of kind of making your name out in the on the dance floor and then being able to return to the record shops? Yeah, it was it was kind of working my way into a gang. There was a there was kind of a soul mafia back in the day. Um <laughs> that was a group of DJs that were, were kind of the biggest DJs on the scene. Um and it all you know, the, the especially soul scene was in London, but it really it was all also in all the home counties. Um you're talking about the kind of late seventies going into the early eighties. Yeah. And um the way I I I was the kind of young whippersnapper. I, I was probably ten years younger maybe than all these guys. Mm. Maybe a bit a bit more with a couple of them. And um I I just started running clubs in Kent and then booking them to come and play for me and then eventually they got to know me and then I started to get booked to play with them at their clubs in you know Essex or London or whatever and I built my way into the scene like that and then they used to they used to hold these all dayers and like these special one-off events at kind of bank holidays and Christmas or whatever and I started to get a peer on the bill of those parties so yeah and work my way up and then you just yeah do you I think my way into it? Do you think it so it was more of a thing of like you kind of knew these guys, but you were holding your own parties, yeah, and totally, wanted to yeah, book them yeah. for your own parties, and then it was a kind of respect thing of like, yeah. oh, here's Pete, he's not only DJing but he's booking yeah. his own parties. Yeah, back in the day, it was very much about um, as much as about the music you played. It was about um, yeah, having having something going on, so being entrepreneurial mm. enough. What made you hot is if you had a hot club or a hot club night or a crowd that went with you. So I was um, building that up big time in Kent. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about your track that you've cho- chosen. <laughs> One Nation Under a Groove by Funkadelic, 1978. <laughs> what? What? Um, I'm guessing this was the this was kind of like the anthem of your DJ sets then back in... It was in the the first phase of Mm. me making my name as a DJ. It was like the kind of ultimate funk party record. It was a brilliant record. It's uh, Bootsy Collins. He was part of Parliament, but he broke off and did his own thing um, as Funkadelic. It's kind of timeless. I mean, it's been sampled a million times and it's like had a profound influence on, you know, hip-hop and urban music and people like Pharrell and... um, you know all, all all the greats basically, mm. and it's it's just um, still sounds as good today, and and it's diff- probably as difficult to probably figure out how how it actually got made as well. Um, but yeah, brilliant piece of music, One Nation Under a Groove, and it's still still with a great message. Well, here it is. Ready or not, yeah, we come getting down on the one which we believe. From Kent to London. Um, well, I was still commuting from um, Kent in my twenties. Um, right. So I just used to drive up and down. You know, I had a residency in Baker Street, a place called the Barracuda Club, in the early eighties, and then started appearing more as a DJ in other clubs around London. But I was always going backwards and forwards. Um, and how did that happen? Was that through the little collective you'd you'd gotten into? Yeah, I, the I, I mean, stores? things started to change um, in the eighties. That you know, the the soul scene was very um, predicated around the past and things that were rare and old. So we were, you know, some of the records we were playing were current, but some of the records we were playing were like might have been five, ten years old. Right. And it was all about their rarity and like digging deep and finding them. And then really, when when um, kind of electro and like hip hop started to break through mm. at, the be- at the beginning of the eighties. I was always a progressive, you know, I was always curious about the next big thing. I always wanted to go forward. I didn't, I, as yeah. much as I had fun going backwards, for me, I was excited about the new sounds, new technology, you know, what, you know, new trends. Um, I was a journalist as well for a magazine, so I was always writing about, like, what was next and what was new. And it was a natural thing for me that, like, hip-hop, um, from literally, you know, Grandmaster Flash, The Message, um, you know, Sugar Hill Gang into the early days of Def Jam. Right. Um, this this was like mind blowing, mm. um, and it and it caused a bit of a division because I would I would be playing you know Rock the Bells by LL Cool J or something like that, and the old soul scene kind of rulers you know 
the, the old grandfathers of the scene were like, well, you know, what the fuck are you doing? You can't play that. You can't play that. So it started to cause a bit of a division. I was, and I and I I started to kind of drift away from them and started to do more of my own thing, um, and kind of start to join the dots up with the the next you know generation and the next kind of gang that I would hang with. So um, the early part of the eighties was all about that. And I um, I got a job in a record company in 1983 called London Records, just as it was starting. And they were always very... I mean, one of the first... The day I went to work, they were number one in the charts with um, Candy Girl by New Edition. And they, they'd, 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 and they'd already <laughs> put out um, Walking on Sunshine by Rocker's Revenge. Big tune. And the, and the two guys that ran it were, like, infatuated by dance music and reggae. Right. reggae. One of them was Trinidadian, sort of half Trinidadian. So... Um, and Rod, Roger Ames is still around today in the background at Black Black Butter, actually. Oh, really? So um, he, yeah, they, they had a big influence on me. And I started, like, signing um, dance records. So I signed Run DMC back in the day, Salt and Pepper, um, and and kind of made my name doing that as an A&R guy. And then Did I you sign Goldie? Yeah, yeah, that came later. That, that must but, have um, been a bit, yeah, yeah. A bit, was like bit of a madness. about that. Yeah. <laughs> But then we started. Then dance music really started to explode in in the um, mid '80s, and just as house music was starting to come through, the first few house records I ever signed um, from Chicago were we put out on London Records, and we did a compilation called The House Sound of Chicago Volume mm. One, and all the seminal, all the seminal dance records from from house records at that time went on that album, like Marshall Jefferson Move Your Body. Um, Jack Your Body by Steve Silk Hurley and Love Can't Turn Around by Farley Jack Master Funk, which and, is one of your tunes. Pandy, yeah. Um, and that that yeah, we were so successful with that. Then it was like, well, we got to start a dedicated dance label. And FFRR was started. It was actually a little logo that sits on the London Records logo, and it stood for Full Frequency Range Recordings because it's like an old, it was an old-fashioned kind of audio standard, a bit like stereo or mono or Dolby or something. Um, so we liked the way that the badge looked, and I. So we pulled that badge off of the London logo and started FFR Records. So well, we should probably play. We should probably play <laughs> "Love Can't Turn Around." Um, and this was what this was one of your your own personal signings to London. Yeah, Records. yeah. So it was um, one of the first trips going to New York. Um, well, I used to go to New York quite regularly, and mm. like, and then a friend of mine um, sort of turned me on to house music because all the DJs in New York were like kind of playing these house records from Chicago, and mm-hmm. I got in touch with the guys up in Chicago from a label called DJ International and I signed a bunch of I signed of like everything they had it was like you know this was going to mm-hmm. be the hot new thing so it was like whatever you've got in your drawer on your shelf I'll sign that and we put it together in an album called The House Sound of Chicago Volume 1 to kind of tell a story and introduce house music to the UK and one of the tracks on the album was was Love Can't Turn Around and it featured this you know, you're pretty eccentric as a vocalist, Becky, but this guy, <laughs> Daryl Pandy, um, was a total diva. Um, you know, huge man, gay, uh, eccentric, with this most unbelievable voice. Very rarely you come across a voice like this. And um, I hadn't listened to this record for a long time until you asked me to do this podcast. And I just, You just hear his voice. It's a kind of breathy, like, mad voice from the beginning of this track, and it's uh, it still sounds special. So, yeah. So here we go then, Love Can't Turn Around by Farley Jack Master Jack They must have given you quite a big responsibility when you joined London Records, yeah. which which is quite rare. I don't know what record labels were. My own personal experience with record labels is, you know, everyone shitting themselves about losing their job. If they sign the wrong thing and something goes to shit, you know, it doesn't look very good for um, an A&R. You, <laughs> your, your, your signings were insane. Um how did you did you feel any pressure and and if you didn't is that what kind of made all these signings so easy for you because you were just going with what you felt like sounds sounded good um over like thinking shit i better sign this because it's gonna be this is what's gonna you know 
I think I think the um, it's comp- it was it was a myriad of things. I mean, there, there was definitely pressure. Mm. Um, it was a very male, you know, dominated, like quite aggressive culture at London. Uh, we always felt we were the bastard child of the record business because we were we weren't we weren't a major, but we weren't considered to be an indie. Yeah. So we weren't like um, you know factory records or XL. You know, we were. We were half and half. We were kind of owned by, helped by a major, but we yeah. didn't have the benefits, all the benefits of a major. Like major labels um, back in the day, you know, they'd take their risks. But the books would be balanced because they'd get a Bruce Springsteen album every year or yeah. a Michael Jackson album. We never got that. We had to f- scrap for everything we could possibly scrap for. So we were a bunch of scrappers. Mm-hmm. And um, but, there, so, but there was pressure and it was... It was more a case of like just staying in the in profit rather than loss. So, my the guys I work with, they didn't, you know, I I used to fight passionately about, you know, we got to put music out because it's brilliant, you know, and they're not all going to be hits, but it's brilliant because it's going to shape our label. So that was, as long as you loved it, um, and it was brilliant, it, and and there was still a hit along the way. You know, yeah. the first record I ever put on FFR, I always tell the story was Baby Wants to Ride which is Frankie Knuckles and Jamie Principal, which wasn't considered to be a hit. Um, but the second one I put out was Push It by Salt and Pepper, which which, paid the, which kept the lights on and paid mm. the bills. And that was kind of the way we went. It was like, mm. well, here's one for the, for the for the you know, here's a cool one and here's a hit one. And that's kind of the ratio. And I was, I guess, I mean, people did lose their jobs at our label. Um, and it is weird that some of the greatest records we ever put out were only um, considered to be great like 20 years after they got of course, put out yeah. because they became timeless classics, mm. and um, but they didn't actually pay the bills at the time. So, um, you know, if people ask me today, you know, what advice would you give um, as an A&R man? Just make sure you love it because we've all... I've definitely signed things that I th- I thought would pay the bills, you know, that you didn't love. And yeah. then the minute no one else loves it, it's like, what am I doing with it? Now you're stuck with it. <laughs> so it's, it, it's like you've really got to sign stuff from the heart um, because because if it doesn't work, you better make sure you really loved it. Because yeah, otherwise, course. like, what the hell are you doing? You know? Yeah, got so, to stand with your yeah, records. In, yeah, and I think in time, I mean, Goldie, you know, we talked about Goldie. Goldie wasn't really a hit. You know, that, that that's big. one of my biggest ever frustrations as an A&R guy is that at the time going through that process with him it was it was really revered but it wasn't it didn't sell loads you know time we had to put um uh, inner city life out twice just to get it in the top 40 and i think wow. even the second time it it got to like 38 um over the course of time the album's done quite well um but saturn's return which is a whole different thing was a complete nightmare we, we didn't it didn't work out um so you know, and yet now people look back on that album as totally groundbreaking. For sure, with, with a 60-minute yeah. track called Mother, you know, it's like, so, <laughs> era-defining yeah, yeah, hours yeah. worth. There is of a music. great book if you, no one's ever read it called Kill Your Kill Your Friends, which John, the first. John, John Niven wrote, which is basically yeah. loosely, you know, it's kind of inspired by life. His rage, like, right? Like, yeah, Goldie's mm. rage in there, and, and and that is about London records. It was the first, <laughs> is it? Because yeah, it, it was, was the first the book I ever London. read. In okay. the music industry and the only book I've ever read, yeah. and it fucking terrified me. Yeah. I thought, what am I doing here? It's racist, homophobic, sexist industry, and exactly everything's obviously <laughs> exaggerated, but there's a semblance of truth that yeah. runs through the narrative. Every, everything's just like magnified and like larger than life. But and Ferdy'd never work for London. That's the other thing because <laughs> he's in the book. <laughs> I, yeah, I remember I was signed to Parlophone at the time I was reading it, and there was Miles from Parlophone, yeah, yeah. head of Parlophone, was mentioned, and there were yeah, certain yeah. people I was like. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> Are these the purple people I'm working with? Yeah. Um, interesting. How I w- I'd like to talk to you about um, you going to New York and and finding all the the kind of Chicago house records because that's basically where house music was curated, yeah. right? Um, and I think my my kind of intrigue with it is that it started off a predominantly gay black. Um, scene, yeah. um, and there was all that stuff. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like in Chicago, where you know white supremacists were going down to to the baseball stadium and and burning um, their disco yeah, records. Yeah. Um, do you? How do you feel like? Because I I look around at the the landscape of house music now, um, and I'm not sure whether it is as inclusive to gay black 
scene to a gay black scene anymore um whereas you've got the founders of like robert owens and jamie principal um who have kind of started off in that scene um how do you feel like it's kind of turned now and do you feel like it's still as inclusive i think i think it's inclusive now um i think that any i mean you know the reason yeah, house music was always, it was like the bastard child of disco. They tried to bury disco. It was disco that they were burning the 12 inches in the baseball stadiums. Yeah. And it came back, um, you know, whatever it was, six, seven years later, through these underground producers in, in, in Chicago and to a certain extent in New York and Detroit. And, um, yeah, the kids that... You, any cool club scene I've ever been involved in at the very beginning, um, I've, anything I've ever seen anywhere in the world will always have a mixture of gay and straight. That's always like the hottest party, you know, the, yeah. where the girls feel safest. You know, yeah, the, the, you're right. You, you get the kind of flamboyance of the gay scene, um, and it's just edgy. And it's like, and I think that's happened in happened in Paris, you know, in the 1920s probably, and it happens happens still happens to this day in Berlin. I suppose Glitterbox as well is a great example. Yeah, yeah, that. and I think uh, mm. that that kind of that that's still the perfect mix for me. I mean, it was definitely there at the beginning in Ibiza. Um, so I th- and I think, yeah, I mean, I can't. I think I think I think it's still inclusive. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Um, I'd certainly, you know, playing in um, the best part is in LA and New York. Now I live in America. It's still where you get that kind of mix. So. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned Ibiza there. I remember Ibiza growing up. Yeah. And I remember it in a very Fred and Perry go large <laughs> yeah. sort of yeah. way. Kevin and Perry. Yeah. yeah that's what well, did I say? Yeah. Fred and Perry. I yeah. always do that. Kevin and Perry go large sort yeah. of way. Well, that um, was your introduction to it, which is fair enough, you know. Yeah, but I It had already become a cliche, you see, for someone to take the mickey out of it. A little bit. Yeah. But I remember I remember trance, yeah. I think, in my early... I think that's my earliest musical memories as yeah. being trance music. Um, and my mum had 9am till I come as her monophonic ringtone on her Nokia 3310. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so, f- for me, like, I remember that... Ibiza and especially with the trance movement it felt like the records that I was listening to I remember my brother giving me Alice DJ Better Off Alone when I was the single CD Um, and there were all those records floating about and I remember really loving those tunes as a six year old I suppose I would have been Um, and it felt like a euphoric moment where by the time I was getting to Ibiza it it was almost like I felt like there was something special that had been on the island but had kind of filtered out. Um, I can't imagine what it was like going in the beginning of Ibiza. And and for me, what I kind of... I've got some history of Ibiza. It started out as a kind of acid, hippie, kind of magnetism place of the world um, and then kind of became this dance sensation island for hedonists. Um... When did you start going? Did you feel like something there was something special there? Did you feel like it was a kind of bubble for dance music? Um, I, I first went in the late 80s on a holiday trip with Nicky Holloway and um, Paul Oakenfold. And it was it was very foreign. That was probably the 
best way of describing it. It was just, it was so different for us English guys going down to Ibiza. To, but it was this, but there was a freedom there. You know, clubs opened late, so clubs went all night. Um, and it was just like we were suddenly dancing with Spanish kids and like German kids. And so, um, but it was a bit, it was a bit all over the place in the late 80s. I didn't go on the famous trip that they all went on a few months later um, when they all took ecstasy for the first time. And it was that was Nicky and Paul and Johnny Walker and Danny Rampling. Um, wow, that must have been mental. So that that was that's always reported as the kind of transformative trip. And from that trip, th- those individuals all came back and started um, Acid House Clubs in London. Right, which interesting. Was, which was with Danny Rampling and... Um, trip with Nicky Holloway that I worked with him on and Spectrum for Paul Oakenfold. So and then 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 it was the rave scene in the UK and like that blowing up and and I started I, I took a break from Ibiza for a year or two and then I st- went back in 91 and DJ for Manumission and then I've been every year since. So I think in the 90s it was I think I think getting back to your point Whenever you go to Ibiza for the first time, if you if you find your place and your spot, um, then Ibiza can still be really really that magical. And I think yeah. I think even in the nineties, for the real purists that were there in the eighties, they might be saying, "Well, it wasn't as good as the eighties, you know." But if you were going for the first time in the nineties or in the early two thousands, and you went to a cream night on a Thursday at Amnesia, and you saw that you dived into that kind of trance scene, which is yeah. where that really was coming from, um, then. You know, those few years you go at a certain age of your life and you go year after year with your mates, um, they that changes, you know, shapes your experience and your shapes your life and you remember those tunes forever, which is kind of full circle back to what the Ibiza Classic show is all about. Yeah. So I think the most... And Ibiza is constantly changing, you know, and it, it might not have looked like it changed in five years in the 90s if you were going continuously, but obviously if you took a break and went back in the mid-2000s, it yeah. would probably seem like it changed a bit. And it it always changes, and um, it has obviously become much more of a, a bigger business. It's, um, but there's still you can still find good stuff there. Will it will it ever be as kind of hippie, groundbreaking, um, making it up kind of as it was in the early nineties? No, no, definitely right. definitely not. Um, right, and and it's important. The biggest challenges for Ibiza now is like how do young kids afford it because it's got expensive. And VI, you know, very VIP culture, right? Very VIP. The table business is yeah. becoming more dominant. Um, but you've still got success stories. You know, the, the People's Night in Ibiza this year was definitely the Salado Fisher Camel Fat Night at, um, High on a Tuesday. That didn't really have that much table business. Um, it was That was much more about kids on the dance floor. DC10 tries pretty hard and, and is generally pretty successful at keeping their thing more about the audience and less about the VIP although they do have VIP things now mm-hmm. um, so you have to you have to hunt around um, but I think the biggest concern of all is if we don't have an audience there as DJs then you kind of then completely you fu- fucked yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> I mean, because the reason why I started this podcast in the first place is because um, I've always been massively into my dance music yeah. um and multiple different genres of dance music. And I think going going raving now, and I suppose for the past eight years, from 18 to 25, well, 17 to 25, I, you know, I look at rave now and I have always wondered if I've missed out on something, which is why I started this podcast right. to talk to people to find out whether the landscape of, of dance music has, has changed now. And the people that I've... Um, spoken to already has said something similar people will always look back on their golden age as their golden age they won't you know and they'll always they'll they'll look less fondly on stuff that's happening right now but stuff that's happening right now could be a golden age to somebody else so with saying that obviously with the Ibiza Classics show that is I look around that show night after night and I'm I'm like dumbfounded. Like it's mad how many people, and that ranges from like people my age to people in their sixties, seventies. Yeah. Like there is a broad spectrum of people at that show. Yeah. Um, do you think it's important to still to perpetuate that um, golden era of Ibiza and remind people why they went raving in the first place? Well, yeah, <laughs> I, think it, I think it works. I mean, it, it um, obviously that wasn't. I think we. The first ever show I curated with Jules Buckley was was 
simply that. It was meant to be a celebration of Ibiza. That's the way it started out, the, the, the one we did at the proms. But obviously, we, once we saw the reaction in, in the room to the way everyone responded to it and the fact that this music that basically people thought was a bit cheap and was never going to be revered in the... You, you are know, now hall, doing it hall, hall, with hall a 100-piece orchestra. The, the Hall of Fame with... <laughs> you know, in the way rock and yeah. roll is. Um, but played by an orchestra, it kind of added all this gravitas to it. So it kind of brought new life into these songs and these productions. And that was the magic. It was the magic of, of playing this music in a unique way as opposed to just a DJ playing mm. it. Um, and then having this kind of, um, yeah, revival, rev, you know, mem trip down memory lane, kind of celebrate, you know... Um, nostalgia kind of trip as as someone famously called it um it, it the, that mix in the room just made it that there was some secret source created <laughs> it and is that's what that's special. what's kind of made it addictive and that and that's yeah so i think now it's grown into this completely different beast um with the whole production and the stuff on the screens and you the likes of you joining us um yeah, so I don't. You know, there is some mad magic now. It does. It does feel a bit mad for me because obviously yeah. I see people in the crowd. <laughs> just they've obviously come out for a night to do to to take drugs and just go <laughs> mad, and it's mad to watch. Like you're you're watching people like, you know, your mom and your uncle, and do you know what I mean? And they're just they're going for it. I think I for the listeners that haven't that don't know, I sing. Um, Sing It Back by yeah. Monoko on the on the on the last album, not the most recent one. Yeah. Um, which uh, in fact let me play it before I start talking about it. This is Monoko Sing It Back. I have succumbed to this passive sensation, peacefully falling away. And the zombie, your wish will command me. Life as I fall to my I remember seeing it back growing up as a kid and it was around it was around the time and it was a few years later it was a few years later but it was like my brother and sister who would make these compilation cassette tapes mm -hmm. for my dad yeah. to put on in his car and it was like uh you don't know me yeah. sing it back it was um my 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 yeah. it was like tunes yeah. like that that were um you know kind of coming through at the time and what's mad to me now is that those songs are it's almost cool again it's not nostalgic anymore no no I, th I think that's the other joy of it is just celebrating the um the songwriting you know at the end of the day that's the ultimate thing isn't it the fact that you can um a lot of a lot of great dance records were about production and you don't necessarily yeah. cover them, but they're all You're right. also reminding people that the you know there was some incredible songwriting and like lyrics, you know, and um, all the, again the same values that you would apply to you know a pop record or you know a Beatles record or whatever. That's what's going on with these songs, and that's why Sing It Back is timeless. And we've managed to um, you know arrange it and um, and make it in a way that it, it feels very contemporary. That whole idea of the transformation into the Giorgio Moroder kind of Donna Summer bit at the end, that comes yeah. from a bootleg that used to be played at DC10. That whole thing is based really? on, on a bootleg. Yeah, so I that mix that. that mix never came out. The way we do it is based on a bootleg. Um and the way you know, we do the way you sing it. So Oh great, that makes sense now. Yeah, because that bit was never on the original. No. Um, and it because it kind of takes it to a bit more of a darker place in yeah, the yeah, set. Yeah. I've always noticed yeah. that. Yeah. Um interesting. I think I think that's some, something that's so important today is is keeping that kind of artistry alive, you know. And, yes, and, um, for sure. That's what I want to chase, you know. That's um, that's kind of shaped some of the choices for this podcast. But I think it's, um, you know, that that's what I worry about now in 2019. That we, you know, was you know, where are the next prodigies and where are the next Basement Jacks and where are the next Groove Armadas and yeah. where are the next Chemical Brothers and the Underworlds and you know, um, there aren't enough disclosures, you know. Yeah. We want to keep more of that. Um, so That's yeah. so interesting yeah. you say because I think... There's a million, million DJs now. I mean, because software is so available, which is it's so creative. It's like, it's brilliant. Yeah. You know, Ableton, Logic, everything's so cheap. I mean, there's billions of house, 
tracks getting made, but there's not many songs getting written. Um, that's the harder bit. So. Well, what I've noticed, because my, my golden era of music was 2006, yeah. so it was kind of like all those top lines that were coming out. Yeah. Um, I had Ministry of Sound Annual 2006, which yeah. was just kind of... Um, so like uh, Destination Unknown it yeah. was uh, Let Me Think About It it was all yeah. all of those kind of classic they weren't necessarily house but they were dance floor tunes yeah. um, and what I kind of got through talking to people in the industry is that A&Rs would send it out to one songwriter yeah. and you would get one song back yeah. and it would be the song that was out now you have so for example let's like I use False Alarm as a reference, obviously, because I put it out through it. Well, it was put out through FFRR. Um, that was written in a writing camp, which yeah. for me, writing camps seem quite clinical. I love doing them yeah. because I love writing. We're talking about Gecko, right? Uh, no, different. Matoma, the False Alarm, but even sorry, yeah. even Gecko. Yeah. That was, you know, I know Gecko was Overdrive. Well, Gecko in its form was sent out to a few different yeah. people, and I think you know. Albeit it was it was a great success because yeah. me and Emanike just kind of went ah yeah. fuck it let's just write it was you know we didn't think about it too much which is where I think great song songwriting happens is when you don't overthink it and nowadays I feel like the industry is kind of saturated in so many ideas and top lines and let's send it to this person well, and that too, person it's almost got too professional you know that yes um, there's less feel in it now yeah yeah um, so I mean. It took it took Robbie Williams actually funny enough to tell me one. I sat with him on a plane one day, and he told me his to his because he'd already. I mean, this is nothing to do with house music, but because he'd already because <laughs> he's written all his great music with Guy, well with Guy Chambers. Yes. Um, when things were going wrong for him, and he was living in LA, he told me his experience of, of first being involved in those kind of writing rooms you know, when people just come through. And and it's mad, isn't it? And they, people just open their laptops, and it's like you know. And he found out that there was a specialist for like you know there's someone that just did middle eights or there's someone that just does the yeah. second the br the bridge one you know <laughs> chorus one chorus two, and it was all so like you know did you know digital and kind of um, calculated yeah. that he just he, he was horrified, and I think what I'm trying to say with this is um you know somehow we've got to if we could join the dots of what people like you do and bring it closer to the producers so it isn't isn't like a far farming factory farming for sure and a bit more from you haven't got someone yet. doing melodies yeah. in one room someone doing lyrics in the yeah. other yeah because i think you're more likely to get a finally kings of tomorrow or a yes. or a nightlife kim english or a um ride or on a time sing it back. Or, yeah, yeah for sure if it's one person working a bit closer understanding what, what it's more about you know so yeah, that's how I, I suppose that's how I've always liked yeah. to create is yeah. being with the producer, writing yeah. from scratch. Yeah, you know, having this whole talking about everything and getting it out in the open. Yeah. I think, but I do. There is a bit of a pattern here. I think two of the things that I did want to ask you is, especially going back to our conversation ages ago, but um, definitely about how technology has changed because I've the the the. I spoke to DJ Zinc, for example, yeah. um, and Andy C and Ronnie Size, and I was the, the podcast that I've had with them is very much how they would create tracks, yeah. and it sounds like fucking like wizardry. Yeah. You have to go through. A, there's a thing called a dat tape and yeah, yeah. <laughs> and analog shit, and you have to record it and go back in and make sure everything's perfect. And if it isn't, you have to start again. Yeah. You know, it sounds so difficult. Whereas I sit. Or well, sometimes studio, when it's unperfect, it's brilliant. Sounds better, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's you get happy yeah. accidents yeah. more so by doing it that way. Whereas now, as you say, you've got Logic or Ableton, and you can sit there, and if you make a mistake, you can tune it out, and yeah. you can do this, that, and the other. And do you think that um, has kind of? And again, this is the conversation with you know trying to find records from record shops and how difficult that was. Do you think that there's some sort of? And I don't know whether prestige is the right word, but there is weight. There is less weight to being a, a, a DJ or a producer nowadays than there was back when. I think it's Go. interesting. <laughs> it's um, I think it's a really interesting thing to study. I think the. I think you can still be a great DJ in 2019, but the criteria that gets you there is is um, is different to what it was maybe five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, thirty years ago. In a weird way, it's almost coming back to um, what it was thirty years ago. Because when I think now about someone like Peggy Goo, 
you know, she does make music. It's pretty cool. She she's, does, yeah. she's, she, But what's actually really created the heat around her, apart from her Instagram account, mm-hmm. is that she kind of really delivers when people go and see her. So she is actually a really good selector. She doesn't sound like anyone else. She can take you on a kind of different journey. And people um, are point. liking the experience and they're coming back for more. Um, so that means she's actually a curator and she's um, got a bit of a scene around her. And these are all things that would, would exactly the same, weirdly, for, you know, except I didn't have an Instagram account. But like that's <laughs> the way you made your name right at the beginning of this story. So that's quite nice. Um, I think there's a DJ called Michael Beebe as well who's running this label called Solid Grooves. And he's been around for a few years, but he's really broken through this year. And he runs hot parties that people go to, and he does make music that's pretty good. But he's quite a charismatic figure in the DJ booth. And he that seems to be working for all what I would call old-school reasons. Um, right. Whereas if we go back to the beginning of EDM... You know, look at the breakthrough of David Guetta or Avicii or, um, you know, Swedish House Mafia. They they really made their big step up in the studio. You know, they all made tunes. And the whole EDM era is really defined by the tunes they made. And obviously, the bit that goes after that is they did go out and, you know, David Guetta had a life as a DJ and was got good at it before he ever made um, the Black Eyed Peas tune. And Which Saints, tune did he make? You know, I got a feeling. Oh, did know, he was, make that? It was, was him and... Oh, of um, course. Uh, it was around yeah. that era, wasn't it? And that was a, that was Will I Am coming to Pasha one night and just seeing what was going on and going back to David's hotel room and coming up with that tune. So, But what I'm saying is the EDM era, the, those DJs were defined by their productions. Like the, as much as Peggy Goo, she's made a few good tunes and the promise is that she'll make better ones in the future. Um, I don't think that's just... that She's really happening because of being a curator um, and, and actually her DJ skills. And same for the... All the girls now, like Charlotte DeWitter and Emily Lenz and Nina Kravitz, um, it's been a whole female breakthrough. But they're all—it's already their 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 abilities in the DJ booth, which yeah. is quite old school. You know? It's the same with Molly Collins as yeah. well. I think there's a few, you know, Harriet Jackson. There's yeah. a few with the few females in the drum. Yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. you know I'm yeah. drum and bass yeah. through and through. But you know, there's a lot of well, drum and bass is interesting because that was always about skills. I think I don't. I mean, like techno is actually about skills and not hits so you don't really rise to the top of the techno scene necessarily by making great music i mean that's one way to get there but it's actually you have to really show up and deliver and i think that's always been the way in the drum and bass i I, if i would disagree only because there are some incredible um songs right and i think that's drum and bass i feel like taught me how to put a top line on a song, yeah, yeah. on an instrumental, because you have people like Jenna G, um, you know, and with Shy Effects did Feelings yeah, yeah, and course, yeah. and Shake Your Body yeah. and stuff like that. I think, I think what I've taken away from this kind of conversation is that you can be, you know, as you say, a million and one people can have like, uh, Logic or Ableton. You you know you can do. Peggy's a really good example because it's more about the vibe of her. Yeah. You're almost going, it's almost like you're going to see an artist yeah. because of what she p- chooses to yeah. play, what she w- what she's wearing, how yeah. she's looking, because she is cool as fuck. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and, but like the whole EDM vibe, and especially with drum and bass, I feel like it's so well produced yeah. that you can't be shit and be doing, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're working on logic well, you're or... you're definitely not going to get to the top of that tree. You can't, yeah, I mean, it's... Right. Yeah. I mean, the EDM era was defined by the by the people, the best got to, you know the once you crossed into that super A list, you know. But it was they, such they, a well, good producer. But you, but that, you know, Calvin Genre. Calvin Harris spawned you know a hundred people trying to sound like Calvin Harris, and we can't remember any of their names. You only really remember Calvin Harris, and same for Avicii, same for Swedish House Mafia, same for Getter. So um, if you got into that top, you know, notch. You know, Skrillex to a certain extent as well. You know, for it, sure, it inspired a million people to kind of be like him. But there's only one Skrillex. Well, so. dubstep was yeah. exploded. I remember yeah, yeah. when it came around in this. In I mean, he was, he UK. was, he was, he was like a big thumbs down initially from the UK lot. You know, in, I think he was yeah. great for the first two years, and yeah. when everybody else, I remember at school when we were all listening to Skrillex, and yeah. then all the kind of goths and emos started listening to it and all of a sudden it was like Grebo music and you couldn't listen to it anymore and then it went to America and stuff. Okay, cool. Well, let's go on to the final track Um, because this this tune actually shaped a lot for me and 
kind of put a flag plant in the ground for um, good music being made in in you know the 2010s. Yeah. What um, I thought about this track is it just what this what this is what I want to see. This is my kind of hope for the future because I I want to I'm still involved in the record business. I want to find the next disclosure. And I think these two you know those two Howard and um, Guy grew up like heavily influenced by. Um, a lot of the music I've been involved in in my life, you know, house house music, soul music, um, and there, there they are, two young brothers um, who were kind of curating their own world around them, and and when they started, they they pulled together this new generation. Um, I mean, that think that first album is just mind blowing in terms of the talent that, that it features was very on special, it, yeah. and it it was like they they found this whole new gang, like as I say, new generation of singer songwriters. And they came up with something that, um, from an art- artistry level, was like a ten out of ten. Um, and there's not, there's not been, I can't think of one since actually. And the, and um, but it did inspire, you know, I think people like you. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so I think it, it that's, it, you know, when I when I pawn, when I when I look back and I think where are the next, you know, prodigies and and Chemical Brothers coming from? Then we did we did get disclosure, and hopefully they'll um, they'll inspire. And we'll get another one. <laughs> okay, so well think, let's play Latch. Yeah, there wouldn't us. be there wouldn't be Sam Smith. There would not be. So without further ado, this is Latch by Disclosure. <laughs> first person that I've had in this podcast who has been slightly worried yeah everybody else has been like oh you know music's just different now and it's all changing and it's all for the better and you know it's not that it was great back then and it's not as good now it I feel you on this I feel like we are getting to a point in music where good thing to say Something well, yeah. <laughs> well, something has to change because it needs to have a, a reboot. Well, I think right? one of the, one of the, um, yeah, one of the scary things for me is that we are we've we've worked together now on Ibiza Classics for four or five years. Um, we're getting to we're at the end of a decade. You know, we're sitting here at the end of two thousand and um, nineteen, and. <laughs> I've I've just got like all the you know I've got in my bag I've got the mix mag of the decade you know make the DJ magazine of the decade and on tomorrow I'm doing the decade show with Annie Mac um, where we're doing four hours together on Radio One to celebrate the decade and what and there have been some good records from this decade but there are many in the Ibiza Classics show and that's the worrying thing that I don't know how many you know we got Cola in there this year yeah um, which is a defining moment from 2018 but. I, you know, there's been a lot of sounds and moments and hype and some good stuff in, in the last ten years. But most of those records that are timeless were written in the '90s or the or the first mm. ten years of the 2000s. So that's the bit I want to, you know, I think that that's what we've got to look at for the next ten years. For sure. Well, I think it's too early to say if there's a timeless record right. <laughs> happened because it needs a bit more time. But I, I definitely feel no, there's like there's been some good records. I'm not there, getting wrong. Yeah, but, um, I know what you mean. There's not as many, and that's this, very I mean, we're we're doing this show, um, and we were putting together the track listing for it tomorrow, and it hasn't f- finally flushed out yet. But there's a there's a there's hundreds of. B pluses, <laughs> right, and, and moments. Yeah, you know, I can I can associate great memories with of the past ten years. But when it got to the very very top of the list, yeah, you know, what's the defining record of the last ten years? I mean, as good as Cola was, you know, is that that's not really? I don't I, mean, I don't know. I'm is, you know, I'm with great. you. I'm with the Camel Fat Boys, but um, yeah. <laughs> well, so, sounds like it's yeah. my job to bring that yeah, to you then, Pete. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for right, being been here. A pleasure. It has been absolutely fascinating and thank you so much you've been great thank you Pete Dog thank you